Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Professor Michael Cox uh, from Ideas, the director, and I'll be chairing uh, this public lecture this evening on behalf of Ideas, this Ideas CWSC Gilda Lehrman lecture series. Uh, for three years, uh, first the Cold War Studies Centre and now Ideas, uh, CWSC, here at the LSE, has been uh, forging an alliance and sponsorship lectures in, in American history with the renowned uh, Gilda Lehrman uh, Institute uh, based in New York. The partnership has been an outstanding success and it promises uh, to remain so. Uh, last November, we hosted uh, Professor Carol Birkin, who spoke uh, brilliantly, I believe, in my view, on rewriting the history of the Constitution from the miraculous to the political. Um, in March, we look forward uh, to listening to Professor David Kennedy, who will speak on the impact of World War II uh, on the United States in his lecture to come, The Pivot uh, of the 20th Century. And tonight... January, and you may have noticed from the weather outside, uh, we are delighted uh, to welcome one of the most famous, influential, and prominent of American historians, Professor Eric Foner from Columbia University, where he holds the prestigious uh, DeWitt Professorship of History. Uh, Professor Foner's achievements in a long and distinguished career, stretching back over 30 years, are many as a public intellectual and university academic. Only one of two people to serve as president of three major professional associations, the Organization of American Historians, the American Historical Association, and the Society of American Historians. It would be impossible, I think, to sum up Professor Foner's work in a nutshell. But it would be fair to say that his publications and his work have concentrated in the main on the intersections of intellectual, political, and social history. This has been expressed in one major book uh, after another, including Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, The Ideology of the Republican Party Before the Civil War, published in 1970, Tom Paine and Revolutionary America, published in 1976, Nothing But Freedom, Emancipation and Its Legacy, 1983, Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution, 1863 to 1877, published in 1988, winner of many awards, including the Bancroft Prize, most recently awarded to, to my co-director, Professor Arnie Westad, The Story of American Freedom, published in 1998, Who Owns History, Rethinking the Past in the Changing World, 2002, and his latest book, Forever Free, The Story of Emancipation and Reconstruction, published in 2005. In a recent book review of Professor Fona, it was written about him, like his mentor, Richard Hostadder, Eric Foner has had an enormous influence on the way other historians, as well as a good cut of the American public, have come to think of American history. And one of the reasons for this, I suspect, is that like all great historians, Professor Foner views the past as carrying all manner of lessons for the present. History is thus not a dead space for Professor Foner, but a site of exploration where we can learn much about the modern condition. And I'm sure we shall do so again tonight in his lecture, The Significance of Reconstruction After the Civil War in American History. Professor Fona, you are more than welcome to the LSE. We look forward to hearing what you have to say on the American past and possibly on the American present as well. You're welcome here. Thank you very much.
Thank you uh, very much for that kind introduction. Um, as uh, Professor Cox said, I, I teach normally at Columbia University, where in uh, you, it, this probably was reported here somewhat in the news. We, we, the president of Columbia has developed a different way of introducing guest speakers, <laughs> and I wasn't quite sure which method prevailed at LSE. At Columbia, when guest speakers come, they are subjected to a tirade of about 20 minutes as the... I, I have another text Oh, here. all right. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad that that hasn't uh, crossed the Atlantic yet. Um, so I will uh, speak this evening about this period, not widely known, I'm sure, in Britain and indeed in the United States, uh, called Reconstruction, uh, the period immediately after the American Civil War. Um, Reconstruction is both a time period, which you can date either from 1865 to 1877, or in my book, as was mentioned, I dated it 1863 to 1877 for complicated reasons. But it's also a historical process, which doesn't have a very fixed uh, ending time, and that is the process by which the United States came to terms or tried to come to terms with the consequences of the American Civil War, the two most important of them, the uh, preservation of the American nation-state and the destruction of the institution of slavery. One might almost say that we're still trying to work out the consequences of the end of slavery uh, in, our, in our country. After my talk, I would be more than happy to field questions for a while, so please feel free to uh, ask me uh, later on. Um, I have devoted a lot of my own career to the study of Reconstruction. A couple of my books were mentioned. I've also curated a museum exhibition in the 1990s. I was the advisor to a television series on public television in the U.S. a few years ago on this. But um, I have to acknowledge that uh, rather few Americans know very much about Reconstruction. Uh, back in the 1990s, the Department of Education um, conducted one of these surveys they do periodically to um, find out how much Americans know about their history. And they always, of course, this leads always to laments that no one knows any history. This was a survey of about 16,000 graduating seniors in American high schools. And um, they were asked to rank different things or to say something intelligible about different things in American history like the westward movement or the civil rights movement or the first atomic bomb, various things. And then it was listed. So 80% could say something about the westward movement and various percent. But the bottom of the list, the thing at the absolute bottom was Reconstruction. Only 20% of those graduating from high schools in the United States could say anything intelligible about Reconstruction. I had recently published this 600-page book on Reconstruction, so I, I found this disheartening. But um, the fact is that even if we're not aware of it, Reconstruction is indeed part of our lives today in the United States. Or to put it another way, the key questions facing American society are in some ways Reconstruction questions, or at least you can't really understand them without understanding something about that period well over a century ago. Um, in the last decade, it sometimes seemed that we were actually reliving episodes of Reconstruction. Even though history doesn't really repeat itself, it seemed like it was trying to. First, there was the impeachment of President Clinton back in the late 1990s. The first president, the only other president to be impeached and tried before the Senate was Andrew Johnson during Reconstruction. 
Then there was the election of the year 2000, when uh, the disputed election where nobody quite knew who won for a while. Well, this happened in 1876, also at the end of Reconstruction. And in both cases, the state of Florida was claimed by both parties and became a uh, uh, part of the uh, you know, debate and the resolution of this. Um, in the current uh, presidential campaign, as, as I'm sure you know, we are perhaps uh, seeing a, re a reenactment of a not well-known but uh, important debate that took place during Reconstruction between feminists and uh, advocates of the rights of African Americans. The, 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 the split between Frederick Douglass and, um, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton over whether women's suffrage or black suffrage was more important. Uh, with, with uh, uh, Obama sort of playing the role of, um, uh, of Douglas, and I guess uh, Hillary Clinton must be Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Indeed, in 1872, during Reconstruction, for the first time in our history, a woman ran for president. This was Victoria Woodhull. Uh, she didn't have quite the major party backing that... Um, that uh, Hillary Clinton may have, and indeed she chose Frederick Douglass as her vice presidential running mate. So maybe this is an indication of what may happen uh, later on this year. So in other words, Reconstruction is around. But actually more significant is here is a fact about American history that um, maybe uh, is a little more substantive than what I've been saying. In all of America, Barack Obama is the senator from Illinois, as you know. In all of American history, from George Washington to the present, there have been all of five black persons to serve in the United States Senate. That's not a heck of a lot, actually. Of those five, two served in the U.S. Senate during the Reconstruction period. Both of them were elected from Mississippi in the years after the Civil War. Two out of five. That shows you that Reconstruction is a fairly unique moment in terms of political democracy and the rights of African-American people uh, in the long uh, sweep of American history. But as I say, even if we don't know that much about Reconstruction, uh, it is part of our lives. Issues that are completely on our agenda today are Reconstruction questions. The definition of American citizenship. Who is entitled to American citizenship? That question is roiling our presidential politics. That's a Reconstruction question. It was determined or redefined during the Reconstruction period. The relationship between the federal government and these individual states, the federal system of American politics, was reworked during Reconstruction. Uh, terrorism was a phenomenon of Reconstruction, as well as the present day. We had our own homegrown terrorist organization, the Ku Klux Klan, which thrived during Reconstruction. And indeed, uh, it's a melancholy fact that the Ku Klux Klan killed more Americans, our homegrown terrorism, uh, killed more Americans than Osama bin Laden did on uh, September 11, 2001. Um, affirmative action, that is to say, what is the, what is the um, obligation of the nation to help to uplift those who have been the victims of past injustice? That's a Reconstruction question, which is still on our agenda today. And the relationship between political and economic democracy, an old, old question, but debated very vigorously in Reconstruction and still uh, on our agenda uh, nowadays. So my point is you can't understand American history without knowing something 
about Reconstruction. One other thing, before I get into some of the actual history of that period, Reconstruction is also a prime example of what we uh, sometimes call the politics of history. I'm, I'm not talking about whether the um, uh, historian is a Republican, a Democrat, Labor, conservative. The politics of history, the way in which historical interpretation both reflects and helps to shape the politics of the present, of, of the time the historian is writing. Um, for many, many years, well, really most of the 20th century, actually, uh, a, what we call the old or standard view of Reconstruction dominated historical writing and, um, and textbooks and popular thinking. In that view, in a very short nutshell, Reconstruction, the period after the Civil War, was the lowest point in the whole saga of American uh, democracy. In that view, um, President Abraham Lincoln at the end of the war wanted to bring the defeated South back into the Union um, uh, in a uh, quick, lenient, forgiving manner. Uh, after his assassination, his policy was uh, continued by his successor, Andrew Johnson. Johnson was thwarted, according to this view, by the villains of the peace, the radical Republicans in Congress, motivated either, depending on you, which historian you want, either by just a vindictive hatred toward the South or the desire to fasten the grip of northern capitalism on the South or simply the desire to keep the Republican Party in power, they overthrew Johnson's lenient plan and imposed black suffrage, that is the right to vote for black men, uh, the former slaves, uh, in the uh, defeated South. Blacks, according to this view, were, were incapable of exercising the rights of uh, political democracy. They were, basically, this view said they were just inferior and shouldn't be part of uh, political democracy. And therefore, what happened was an orgy of corruption and misgovernment um, presided over by this trio of uh, uh, political leaders of the Reconstruction South, African-Americans themselves, the carpetbaggers, one term which of that period that still survives in our politics, carpetbaggers being northerners who came down to the South to reap the spoils of office, and then the so-called scalawags, who were white southerners who cooperated with blacks, turned their back on their race and cooperated with blacks in these misgovernment in the South. Eventually, according to this old view, Patriotic groups like the Ku Klux Klan overthrew these governments and restored what was politely called home rule or what we would really call white supremacy uh, in the southern states. Now, the politics of history, this view had an amazing longevity. Most, you know, most of us historians make our living denouncing what uh, everyone else is, you know, what has been written five years ago uh, for a point of view to remain the standard view for 50 to 60 years is uh, really unprecedented. I can't think of any interpretation of American history that's true of. Why, what, what explains the longevity of that old view? What explains it is that it, it fit, it, 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 it was congruent with the racial system of the United States from 1900 until the civil rights era of the 1960s because the political lessons of that old view of Reconstruction were, very, were clear. One, it was a mistake to give black people the right to vote during Reconstruction. Therefore, the, the South was right to take away the right to vote from blacks, as they did around the turn of the century, and any effort to give African Americans back their political rights would simply lead to another orgy of misgovernment like in Reconstruction. Second of all, 
Reconstruction was imposed upon the South by northern outsiders. Maybe some of them were do-gooders, you know, motivated by some humanitarian uh, ideal. But nonetheless, Reconstruction proved that northerners do not understand the South. The only ones who really understood southern race relations were southern whites. Therefore, the lesson was the South should resist any outside calls for change in their racial system. Again, otherwise a new reconstruction would come about. And the third lesson of this view, which seems rather arcane today, was that reconstruction was created by the Republican Party, and therefore the white South should remain the solid Democratic South. Today the South is solidly Republican, but up until the 1970s, let's say, or the late, it was solidly Democratic. And one pillar of the solid Democratic South was the memory of Reconstruction and the argument that going with the Republican Party would simply unleash another Reconstruction upon the South. So that's the politics of this old view. And it, but it, again, when the Civil Rights Revolution took place, all the pillars of that old view fell to the ground and it was completely reversed and reinterpreted the P Reconstruction era. And today, I think most historians see Reconstruction as a noble, if failed, effort to establish for the first time in American history an interracial democracy. The tragedy of Reconstruction, we now think, was not that it was attempted, but that it failed, and that it left to subsequent generations this difficult problem of racial justice in American uh, society. Now, to understand how radical Reconstruction was and how, despite its immediate failure, it reshaped uh, American history in significant ways, one has to, for a minute, go back before the Civil War and just remind ourselves of the status of African Americans when the Civil War broke out, in 1860, let us say. Of course, you all know that there were about four million slaves in the United States in 1860. There were some free black people, but the vast majority were slaves in the South. Um, slavery was by far the most important economic institution in the United States. Slave owners had controlled the federal government for most of the period before the Civil War. Slavery was a powerful, expanding, and economically thriving institution. And the power of slavery shaped the concept or the definition of American nationality, of citizenship, before the Civil War. It gave it a powerful racial uh, 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 definition or overtone. On the eve of the Civil War, no black person could be a citizen of the United States. Citizenship was for white people only. That was what the Supreme Court ruled in 1857 in the famous Dred Scott decision. The Supreme Court said very explicitly, America is a country for white people. Black people are aliens here, even if they've been born here, even if their ancestors were here for generations. They can never be citizens of this country. Now, that tells us that citizenship was defined not by birth, but by race. By, uh, we American, uh, American political scientists... I don't know what it's like in this country, but political scientists in America generally don't know anything about history, but they make broad, sweeping claims about it. If you go to our political science department, you will find uh, that they will tell you that the United States represents what they call a concept of civic nationalism. 
whereas places like Germany or others represent ethnic nationalism, a nationalism based on the folk, on language, on culture, on ancestry. Whereas in the United States, our civic nationalism, anybody can become an American citizen. Well, this is true today, but it was not true for the first half century or more of our republic. We had a ethnic nationalism which was grounded in the racial boundaries of slavery. I don't uh, emphasize this to say, oh, look how bad our founding fathers were or anything like that. It's to emphasize the remarkable change that the Civil War and Reconstruction brought about in our, in what, you know, Benedict Anderson called the imagined community, the definition of America itself. The only people before the Civil War who actually put forward this, uh, the other idea, the civic idea, were the abolitionists who were a despised minority. But the people who fought against slavery also fought for a definition of American citizenship um, severed from the concept of race. And that's what came about as a result of the Civil War and Reconstruction. The most important thing that put the question of black citizenship on the national agenda was, well, obviously the destruction of slavery, but in a way more immediate was the service of 200,000 black men in the Union Army during the Civil War. By the end of the war, it had become widely accepted that serving in the army staked a claim to citizenship for African Americans. It put on the agenda, what is, having fought and died for the Union, did they not now have a claim to the rights of American citizenship. Abraham Lincoln himself, who had a very, uh, who had a past as some, who had never supported the rights of black Americans. He was opposed to slavery, but he didn't believe black people were part of the United States. In fact, for almost all of his life, Lincoln believed in what they call colonization, that is freeing the slaves and shipping them out to some other country. But by the end of the war, Lincoln had changed his mind and was advocating for the first time the right to vote for some African-American men, and the ones he singled out in his last speech in 1865 were what he called the very intelligent, that is the free blacks who had education, and what he called, quote, those who have served nobly in our ranks. In other words, the former soldiers should now have the right to vote according to Lincoln. Now, Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, um, was, well, I used to think that he was the worst president in American history. I don't think that anymore, but he was certainly way down this list. He was just completely uh, not the man for the job. He was racist. He was incompetent. He had no sense of public opinion. He had no connection with the Republican Party. He was really a Democrat who had been put on the ticket uh, to appeal to the South. And he was inflexible and just incapable of dealing. He just thought black people now free should go back to work on the plantations and have nothing to do with American government or society other than that. And he, Johnson set up new governments in the South in the months after the Civil War, controlled by white Southerners, uh, with blacks having no role whatsoever. And they enacted a series of laws, which we call the Black Codes, to define the freedom which, uh, the, which the African Americans now enjoyed because of the end of slavery. And the black codes basically tried to use the power of the state governments to push the freed slaves back into a condition, not of slavery, but pretty close to it. They gave them certain rights, like the right to have their marriages recognized in law, which was not the case under slavery, the right to own property. But 
no civil or political rights. And in fact, in all these southern states, these laws required all adult black men at the beginning of each year to sign a labor contract to go to work for the year for a white employer. If you did not do that, if you wanted to work for yourself or something like that, you would be deemed a vagrant. You could be arrested and fined and then sold off to somebody who would uh, pay the fine. Um, the point of these black codes is not to um, say, oh, look, that they restored slavery, because they didn't. They were immediately abrogated by uh, the Freedmen's Bureau, the Army, but they turned northern public opinion against the government's, uh, against Johnson's policy, and they alarmed the victorious Republican Party, which controlled the, na the national government, the Congress, uh, in the they alarmed them into thinking that the South was trying to restore slavery in all but name. And very quickly, Congress in 1866 decided that Johnson's policy needed to be changed. And in 1866, Congress passed um, one of the most important laws ever enacted in American history. This was the Civil Rights Act of 1866. This is the origin of the concept of civil rights. Everybody's heard about civil rights, the civil rights movement. Civil rights originates in 1866 in the United States as a point of law or jurisprudence. The Civil Rights Act of 1866 is the first law, A, to declare who is a citizen of the United States, and B, to say what rights they are to enjoy. There was no definition of the rights of citizenship before the Civil War. The Civil Rights Act states, A, anybody born in the United States is a citizen of the United States. Seems pretty simple. But again, it wasn't the case before the Civil War because black people were born in the United States and they couldn't be citizens. So this gives us this concept of birthright citizenship. It doesn't say anything about race. It's for everybody. And in fact, this concept is still very much a controversial one in our society at this very moment. What is the legal status of the child of an illegal immigrant into the United States? You are, you are a Mexican who sneaks over the border as many do, a woman, and later gives birth to somebody in the United States. Well, that, the mother is not a citizen, but the child is a citizen of the United States with all the rights that come with that. Why? Because of the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and then the 14th Amendment, which puts that principle into the Constitution. Um, so it applies across the board to everybody, of course, not just former slaves. Um, and then, basically, it said, and by the way, all these citizens have to enjoy equal rights before the law. States cannot pass one set of laws for black people and one set of laws for white people. The law has to apply equally to everybody. This was a complete repudiation of the legal history of the United States for the first 70, 80 years of our history. Every state in the Union before the Civil War had separate laws for black and white people. Even Massachusetts, which came closest to the ideal of equality, would not let blacks join the militia or attend public schools in some places, things like that. that all those laws are abrogated by the civil rights law of 18. So as I say, it's a very, very important turning point in the history of law uh, and rights in the United States. And then very, but of course a law can be repealed by the next Congress. So very soon after that, Congress puts these principles into the Constitution through the 14th Amendment, the most important change in our Constitution since the Bill of Rights back in 
the early days of the Republic. Congress passes the 14th Amendment. Eventually, it's ratified by the requisite number of states. And the 14th Amendment, again, declares this principle of birthright citizenship and equal protection of the law. That is, all citizens, no state can deprive any citizen of equal protection of the law. It writes the, the concept of equality into the Constitution for the first time. And again, we take this so for granted in the United States today that, you know, the law should apply equally to everybody. That seems like a pretty simple principle that we fail to realize that that principle didn't exist before the Civil War. The word equality is not in the original Constitution. It's introduced into the Constitution in the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment makes the Constitution what it has become more recently but never was before, which is a vehicle through which aggrieved groups who claim that they lack equality can take their claims to court. And in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, even to today, the courts have used the 14th Amendment to expand the legal rights of all sorts of groups, not just the former slaves, every group in American society. You know, in America, if you... It, there are problems with this. It used to be if you felt your rights were being violated, you took to the streets. Now you hire a lawyer and you go before the courts and claim your rights under the 14th Amendment. But every, every uh, session of the Supreme Court has cases arising out of the 14th Amendment and the interpretation of that very vague, uh, intentionally vague, uh, a phrase, the equal protection of the law. What is it? Who's entitled to it? How is it implemented? So, um, so the 14th Amendment really changes the Constitution in, uh, in, in very significant ways. Um, Reconstruction also, but, but the 14th Amendment also marks a significant change in American um, in the federal system, that is the relationship between the United, the, the federal government and the states, as I mentioned. Um, the Civil War had crystallized in the minds of northerners um, the idea of a powerful national state protecting the rights of citizens. Um, what what uh, the uh, Republican Carl Schurz called the constitutional revolution of Reconstruction not only put this concept of equal rights into the Constitution, but empowered the federal government to enforce it. You can see the point. You can see the point I'm making if you compare the Fourteenth Amendment to the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments in the Constitution, which give us our basic civil liberties, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, etc., etc., the right to the freedom of religion, right to assemble, petition the government. Um, those are all in there, and they're obviously very important, but the Bill of Rights begins with the following, the First Amendment begins with the following words, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, etc., etc. Congress. The Bill of Rights was meant to restrain the federal government. It was based on the idea that the main, uh, the main danger to liberty was a too powerful national state. It had nothing to do with the state governments. A state could abridge your freedom of speech and did before the Civil War. Try to give an abolitionist speech in South Carolina. Not very easy. States could establish religion. Massachusetts had an established church into the 1830s. Didn't that violate the First Amendment? No. The First Amendment is about the federal government. It had nothing to do with the state governments. 
Now look at the final clause of the 14th Amendment. The final clause of the 14th Amendment says, Congress shall have the power to enforce this amendment by appropriate legislation. Congress shall make no law. Now it's Congress shall have the power. This is a fundamental shift. Now the federal government is seen as the protector of individual rights, and the states are seen as those who are likely to violate them. So there's a fundamental shift here in the power within the federal system from the state governments to the federal government. The 14th Amendment makes the federal government for the first time in our history what the great abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner called the custodian of freedom. And ever since then, certainly in the 20th century and today, when aggrieved groups are looking for their rights, they appeal to the federal government, its federal authority, the federal courts. Certainly in the case of African Americans, which over time have always overturned state discriminatory action. That's a reconstruction principle. Without the change in the Constitution uh, that came about through reconstruction, you could never have had Brown versus Board of Education and all the other uh, great pro-civil rights decisions of the courts in the, um, in the 20th century. Now, the 14th Amendment said nothing about the right to vote. But soon thereafter, Congress decided that the governments that were set up by Pre President Johnson were just no good. In fact, they were worse than no good. They were terrible. And um, basically said, we've got to get rid of them. And they decided, to, they said, well, there's got to be new governments in the South, and these governments have to be based on manhood suffrage. Women could not vote in any state in the Union at this time, but for the first time, Congress mandated that black men must have the right to vote when governments are set up in the South. Now, before the Civil War, only a tiny handful of black men could vote anywhere in the Union. They couldn't vote in the South. Even in the North, most states didn't allow black men to vote. Now, suddenly, black men are given the right to vote, to hold office. This inaugurates the period we call Radical Reconstruction, where new governments came to power in the South and, in a, in a sense, tried to wrench the South into the 20th century. They passed, they created public education systems in the South, which had never existed there before. They tried to rebuild the Southern economy. They tried to, uh, they passed civil rights legislation for the states. Um, they tried to protect the rights of black laborers on plantations. Um, black men held public office in Reconstruction at every level of life, from the two senators I mentioned to members of Congress, members of state legislatures, down to justices of the peace and sheriffs and school board officials, etc. Um, most power remained in the hands of white Republicans, but the fact that suddenly you had, by my estimate, about 2,000 African-American men holding positions of politi elected political power was certainly a very significant change in the nature of the American uh, political system. So... Reconstruction was a time of a remarkable experiment in actual democracy in American society. But, of course, the problems of the former slaves coming out of slavery were not limited to lacking civil rights and political rights. They came out of slavery without property, uh, you know, without any economic wherewithal. And in early 1865, one of the uh, more dramatic moments of this uh, period, uh, General uh, William T. Sherman, just having 
captured Savannah after marching from Atlanta to the sea, as you may remember from the film uh, Gone with the Wind, among other things. After capturing Savannah, Sherman called together a group of local black ministers, local black leaders, for what they called the colloquy, just a little exchange. And luckily, the army takes records of everything. So we have an actual transcript of this colloquy. And Sherman asked these, I think, 18 or 19 black leaders, what do you think freedom is? No, first he said, what do you think slavery is? And their spokesman said, slavery... Now, you know, there are many, many ways to answer that question. Many books have been written on that question. What did they say? How, what aspect of slavery? They said, slavery is enjoying the fruits of another man's labor without his permission. Interesting. Slavery is the theft of labor, they said. All right. Sherman said, well, in that case, what, how should you enjoy freedom? You're now free. How do you enjoy freedom? And they said, give us land. Give us land. We can work by ourselves, and then we will enjoy the fruits of our labor. Sherman said, all right, that's a great idea. He issued an order a few days later setting aside a vast swath of land in Georgia and South Carolina for the settlement of black families in plots of 40 acres for these families each. And he said, you know, the army, we've been marching all over the place. We've got all these broken down mules. We'll give them a mule, too. And if they can nurse it back to health, they'll use it on their farm. This is the origin of one of the few things anyone has ever heard of about Reconstruction, the phrase 40 acres and a mule the name of Spike Lee's film company, among other things nowadays. But um, that's where the concept 40 acres and a mule. African-Americans coming out of slavery said, give us land. This is payment for our 250 years of unrequited labor in the United States. And we are still, the term reparations for slavery didn't exist back then, but we're still debating in a way in the United States, what is the obligation of the United States toward the descendants of slaves for the what Lincoln himself in his second inaugural used that phrase, the 250 years of unrequited toil. Well, of course, it didn't happen. Johnson, one of the things Andrew Johnson did was to take that land back. He abrogated any efforts or any, any land, uh, decrees that had distributed land among the former slaves. Northern Republicans pushed forward with the political revolution, but not the economic revolution that might have gone with it. And as a result of Reconstruction, to go back to the one point I made at the beginning, political democracy went forward very dramatically, but economic democracy did not. Most African Americans remained poor, impoverished, propertyless, and with no alternative but to go to work for white employers, often on the plantations they had worked as slaves. But the political revolution was dramatic enough that it inspired, as I mentioned, a wave of violence in the South, the Ku Klux Klan and kindred groups which tried to use assassination terror, you know, modern day terrorism, although of that era, in order to intimidate people, prevent them from voting, and eventually to try to overturn these new governments. And violence was successful in paralyzing some of these governments, but hand in hand with that went a retreat eventually by the 1870s on the part of the North from this ideal of equality that had been written into the Constitution. And as violence reared its head, at first, President Grant, who succeeded Johnson, actually sent troops into South Carolina 
in the early 1870s to crush the Klan, but then when violence again reared its head in the mid-70s, northern public opinion would no longer countenance military intervention in the South, and one by one these governments fell by the wayside until by 1877, which we date as the end of Reconstruction, the entire South was back under the political control of white supremacist Democrats, where it, control would remain until the uh, era of the uh, civil rights movement. Now, there is a long story, but I'm just about at the end of my time. There is a long story that can take us from the end of Reconstruction to the civil rights era of the 1960s, almost a century later, and then to today, where we're still uh, perhaps debating, um, debating these questions. But I think, um, uh, you know, by the turn of the century, a new racial system had been put in place in the South. It wasn't the same as slavery. It was a new system of racial domination. Its pillars included racial segregation, the separation of black and white in all uh, important areas of life, disenfranchisement, that is taking the right to vote away from black men in the South that had been granted to them by Congress, a, the collapse of black education, the, the ending almost of public funding of black education, black education and white education had been created during Reconstruction, and now the black uh, education system was starved of money, a rigid hierarchy of jobs, a segmented labor market in which most good jobs were marked out as for whites uh, alone, um, and policing the system at the edge, uh, violence, the, the lynching, uh, extra-legal violence. Between 1890 and 1960, I think, over 4,000 people were lynched, that is, murdered by mobs, etc., uh, in the southern states, most of them African-Americans. Um, now, of course, this was a, a regional system. In the South, the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, which had come after it to try to give blacks the right to vote, and the civil rights legislation, which remained on the books, were basically abrogated. They were violated. They were, they were not repealed by Congress, by the North, but they were just violated with impunity with the acquiescence of Northern uh, political leaders. But um, eventually, when African Americans began moving to the North in the 20th century, uh, they came to a somewhat different racial environment, which made it more possible to organize uh, politically. But that is a very long and uh, different, uh, different story. I think um, the, the lesson of this history, the couple of lessons one might think about today, one is, uh, as we know, and in not only in this area, rights on the books are not sufficient. They're not self-enforcing. The 14th Amendment remained part of the Constitution, but it was ignored for many, many decades. Civil rights legislation remained in the statute book, but it was ignored. In other words, uh, just as today in the United States, we have plenty of nice constitutional rights, but some of them are being violated by the federal government with little, uh, uh, with little problem um, from the courts or um, popular, uh, popular protest. In other words, as an old phrase says, you know, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Um, but the fact that these measures did remain what Charles Sumner called sleeping giants in the Constitution did provide a basis, a legal basis, 
for the civil rights revolution when it arose in the 1950s and 60s. You know, unlike when they abolished apartheid in South Africa, they wrote a whole new constitution. They couldn't live under the old apartheid constitution. The South African constitution is about 200 pages long, and, you know, it's impossible to read because they decide they're going to put every single thing in there, you know, just to make absolutely sure. In the civil rights movement in the United States did not need a new constitution. There was no significant change in the Constitution as a result of the Civil Rights Movement. What they needed was the old Constitution to be enforced. And eventually it was a century after the Reconstruction period had put these changes uh, into the Constitution. So another one final point about this. Um, we Americans sometimes like to think that our history is a kind of straight line of greater and greater freedom. We began perfect and have been getting better ever since. Um, actually, as Reconstruction and many other aspects of our history show, our history is a much more complicated, much more interesting story of ups and downs, of progress and retrogression, of rights that are gained and rights that are sometimes taken away to be fought for another day. As Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who commanded a unit of black soldiers in the Civil War, wrote when Reconstruction began, revolutions may go backward. Reconstruction was a revolution that went backward. But the fact that it happened at all laid the foundation for another generation, a century later, of black and white people to struggle to try to bring to fruition the goals and the the aspirations and the concept of a country beyond the tyranny of race that had first been really put into our history uh, in Reconstruction. So thank you very much for listening, and I will be happy, as I said, to answer some questions if you like. I can field the questions. Yes, I'll be happy to. Yes. Okay. We need the microphone. Ah, yes, there's a microphone. Where's the uh, hand? This, uh, the hand? The hand? woman over here? Here, in the front. There she is. All right, hi. I want to say in the first place, it's an absolutely marvelous book that you've written, which... Which one? He's done the, 62. The one on, re <laughs> the one on Reconstruction, which yeah. all the, every facet and micro facet of this process in a really morally compelling way, and it's a marvelous book. Mm -hmm. uh, Thank you. But I'd like to read, ask a very general and somewhat abstract question, which is that... One prism through which one can view Reconstruction is that of the notion of nation building um, by the North vis-a-vis -vis the South. And as we have seen subsequently in our history with Germany and Japan and now, of course, mm -hmm. in Iraq. And I wondered whether you had any reflection to share with us about lessons we could derive from the past about this. Uh, lessons. Well, I'm rather um, cautious about drawing lessons from history. You know, in the past few years, uh, reporters, partly because I'm in New York City and our media, I don't know what it's like here, it tends to be fairly lazy, or maybe they don't like to make long-distance telephone calls, so they always call people at Columbia when, you know, in New York. So they call us up, and what do they want to know? What lessons does Reconstruction in the United States hold for the Reconstruction of Iraq? And I would always say, none. Next question. They have nothing whatsoever to do. Clearly the wrong answer. Right. Nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with each other. Next question. This, my interview was rather brief. But, um, but your point is a very good one. 
Uh, this is an era of nation building. Some scholars compare Lincoln to Bismarck or the Meiji Restoration in Japan. Things are sort of contemporaneous. The, the, the consolidation of a national state where a very, very weak one had existed. The American state was very weak, the national state, before the Civil War. Um, the mobilization of resources to fight a war like that required an immense um, you know, augmentation of the power of the federal government. And then, yes, you can see Reconstruction as creating a sort of infrastructure of the national state that had never existed. As I say, the definition of citizenship. There was no definition of citizenship in the law before Reconstruction. The Civil War gave us the first national currency. There was no national currency before the Civil War. The banks all over the place issued different kinds of money. Um, conscription, the first time the federal government actually forced people to join the army. Emancipation itself, by federal decree and by law and constitutional amendment, um, you might say eliminated a status that separated individuals from the state. You know, that slavery is a kind of anomalous status in a modern uh, nation state. Apart from its moral, uh, you know, unacceptability, it creates, it, 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 shields certain people from the state, and that's one of the reasons people said it ought to be abolished. So, yes, this is a period of very rapid nation-building. Um, but, of course, as I said, history doesn't go in a straight line. After Reconstruction, there was a retreat back toward a more limited, not as limited as before the Civil War, but a more limited national government. And, again, it's really in the 20th century that the national state in the United States, the bureaucratic state anyway, uh, becomes, you know, seems like it's permanently fixed. But what, fixed. But what the lessons of that are, I'm not uh, quite sure. Uh, let's see. Yes, down here. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. One of these Take two gentlemen. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I think we're rightly cautious about drawing lessons from history. No doubt you'll be equally cautious. I want to ask you a counterfactual question. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that Abraham Lincoln uh, had rather racist views about blacks, wanted to see them sent out of the country. Um, Given the controversy about, you know, whether the Emancipation Proclamation was an initiative or something forced on him, given controversies about his 10% policy with Reconstruction, given controversies about what he's supposed to have said to Confederate leaders at the Hampton Roads Conference early in 65, do you think had he survived and hadn't been shot, that he too would have inevitably come into conflict with radical Republicans and may have been impeached? I thought you didn't believe in counterfactuals. <laughs> no, he said this is. I know. I, I like counterfactuals. I did say I didn't believe. Yeah, I, I like. I like counterfactual questions because uh, my answer cannot be disproved. So, um, <laughs> um, I, I am always asked this, and I appreciate it. What would have happened if Lincoln had not been killed? Um, Lincoln was a shrewd, uh, sagacious politician. Uh, he does make us wonder if we're in the right business at all because he had the greatest command of the English language of any president, and yet he had less than a year of formal, formal schooling in his entire life. It makes you wonder whether education is needed at all. But, um, you know, it's – Lincoln would never have gotten himself into the fix that Andrew John – it is inconceivable to imagine Lincoln being impeached by Congress. Lincoln was attuned to public opinion, to the to – the, to the currents of, of, of um, you know, of views within the Republican Party, which Johnson was completely alienated from. 
Um, Lincoln's greatness was indeed his capacity for growth. You know, you could say, oh, yeah, Lincoln was a racist before the war. He was, but he changed. He grew. Lincoln was opposed to using black troops. He realized it was necessary. And once you use black troops, there were consequences of that. You had to then protect them when Confederates said, I'm going to treat them as, as, cap as you know, unlawful combatants rather than um, uh, prisoners of war. Uh, you have to think about the – he gave up on colonization and started thinking about, well, what is going to be the role of these former slaves in a post-war uh, society? I think it's – the most likely thing is that Lincoln and Congress would have worked out an agreement on Reconstruction, just as they did on fighting the Civil War. It would have been less radical than the one that was actually implemented. It probably would have included what we call, uh, you know uh, – um, qualified suffrage, voting for some blacks. But I think a Reconstruction plan, which had the backing of both the President and Congress, might have had a much greater chance of success. I mean, one of the things Andrew Johnson did was keep telling the South to, uh, to ignore. The, one of the reasons they impeached him was he kept telling the South that all these laws being passed had no validity and they should violate them, they should ignore them. Um, that encouraged resistance among the white South. So, I, you know, I think things would have probably gone much more smoothly in some ways had Lincoln lived. There would have been conflicts, but, you know, Lincoln always managed to get along reasonably well with all factions of the Republican Party. Um, you know, he, the tragedy of Lincoln, he used to always, he, he was on very good terms with Charles Sumner, the radical Republican senator I mentioned. In fact, you know, Lincoln didn't really like to go to the theater that much, and his wife did, and he always was telling Charles Sumner to come and take his wife to the theater. The one night he decided to go... Bad move. Um, so anyway, uh, I, you know, but would even a reconstruction agreed to by Lincoln and Congress have had stayed, you know, had really stuck? Was the failure of reconstruction inevitable? We don't know. Everything seems inevitable after it happens. Um, but certainly reconstruction was such a leap into the future in terms of this concept of racial equality that, um, you know, it's very easy to imagine that it would have eventually ended anyway, whoever was president. Okay. That's a guess. Uh, Why don't you pick, you, you call on people, yeah, okay? Uh, yeah, give me a bit of job here. Right. Mm -hmm. The gentleman in red, please, and then I'll bring it up. Yeah. You've spoken very eloquently on citizenship, but what did Reconstruction mean for what it meant to be American, the sense of an American identity? Was it significantly changed? After Reconstruction, was it just slightly modified, or was it completely transformed? Uh, that's a good question. Um, a colleague of mine, you will see I always answer questions by taking a detour first, but a colleague of mine, Christopher Brown, wrote a book recently called Moral Capital about the British movement to abolish the slave trade. And I, I love that title because one of his arguments is that the abolition of the slave trade in Britain created a gigantic cache of moral capital where people for, well, it's been going on the, the last year, for two centuries were congratulating themselves on how wonderful they were for abolishing the slave trade after having profited from it from the two centuries before. And the, the Civil War and the abolition of slavery had some kind of the, the same effect on this concept of Americanism. That is, now we were genuinely a free country. The abolition of slavery sort of fulfilled the divine destiny of the United States to be the worldwide, you know, embodiment or emblem of freedom. This had been rather compromised by the existence of slavery in the, you know, era 
uh, from the Constitution to the Civil War. But now somehow the war had purified the United States and made us really this empire of liberty that Jefferson had spoken about but couldn't really uh, put into practice. And I think so, therefore, the, the war had this effect of really heightening something which had antecedents, which was the sense of American mission, of American uh, sort of manifest destiny, as we call it. And, of course, you can hear echoes of that still in our public discourse today. So that's one, one part of what is a very complicated story. Thank you. Uh, my name is actually Elizabeth Stanton. Um, but one of the, one of, one of the um, questions I was been, been bothering me is what happened at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century? Why was there not more antipathy from the north and, and the west and the east coast to the south? Um, every Brit's favorite American, Bill Bryson, talks about feeling most uncomfortable in the south. But there's very little else that one gets to that. Yeah, you know, um, a, a very fine scholar who I think gave one of these lectures, David Blight, uh, a few years ago, uh, wrote a book called Race and Reunion in which he argued that a kind of process of reconciliation among whites, north and south, took place in the last quarter of the 19th century in which the Civil War came to be seen in a rather different light than at the time. It came to be seen as a war of brother against brother. In other words, the political meaning was kind of stripped away. And slavery itself was downplayed as uh, a consequence of the war, and uh, as a, a cause of the war, and emancipation as a consequence. And as part of this invented memory, you might say, Reconstruction was held up as something that both North and South could look back on with regret as a big mistake. Um, this is the era, again, one could give a whole lecture on this. You know, this is the era when social Darwinism becomes very important and the whole idea that, um, that there is this natural hierarchy of groups, races, and that for the government to try to intervene to uplift those at the bottom would be as pointless as trying to intervene in the struggle for existence in the natural world and save a doomed species. And, you know, intellectually, I think, Northern, racism became even more prominent in the United States by the 1890s than it perhaps had almost been before uh, the Civil War. And then one other point, this is the era of American becoming really an empire, the Spanish-American War, the acquisition of um, uh, overseas possessions for the first time. It, you know, Kipling said, take up the white man's burden. He was talking about the United States, not Britain. And uh, taking up the white man's burden meant a was part of a reconciliation of northern and southern white views on race with blacks left to the side, so to speak. Could, could, sorry, I'll bring the gentleman at the back. Could I just... Uh, uh, sorry, yeah. if I could just... I just want to make one point and I'll bring you in. Just on, the, on, the, on this question you raised, though, because I, I had a, a couple of points down here. Mm -hmm. quick, this one on the uniqueness of America in, 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 in the way you've described it. I mean, the, the views which were being written, not about slavery, but about blacks... Uh, this was not unique, clearly, to the United States. Uh, you talked about eugenics and empire. Um, I, I remember doing some research once as a political scientist who knows some history, not much, <laughs> do my best, um, looking at the Treaty of... I was talking about American political scientists. Uh, well, I, 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 I accept your apology. <laughs> um, um, but it's very interesting, as you know, there's an extraordinarily interesting debate uh, in terms of the League of Nations and the Covenant. 
um, where the Japanese delegation wanted to introduce the equality clause into the covenants, of course, were refused by Woodrow Wilson. Of course. Uh, yes. By the way, whose, I think, favourite film was Birth of a Nation. Uh, yes, uh, yes, uh, yes. W.B. Griffiths' wonderfully yes, yes. even-handed treatment of reconstruction. History written with lightning um, is what he called uh, it. In, in this, by the way, as you well know, I'm sure, uh, the United States didn't stand alone. I mean, the, the, the British under the no, no, no. Lord George and, and Australia also ran in behind it. And uh, the, the, the point I want to make more generally is the extent to which you know, a, a global or an international perspective is also needed on this because it then takes the story on oh, I, the absolutely. 1950s and the 1960s the degree to which international events as much as domestic ones changing after the end of the Second World War, the Cold War how that also impacts on the, on the, on the continuing story which you began to hint at. Absolutely, end. no this is completely right. I, I am not a believer in American exceptionalism no, no, I if I uh, gave that impression no, I sure, regret no. it what is exceptional about the United States is the vehemence with which we insist that we are exceptional. Um, but in fact, a, uh, a, a more international or global context, which I know is very important in the teaching here at LSE, uh, is critical to understanding American history. However, I will now backtrack and say one thing that is unique to America is this moment of Reconstruction. Because there were many, many societies that abolished slavery, obviously. But I don't know of another one which within two or three years of the abolition of slavery actually empowered the former slaves in such a significant way in the very plantation areas where they had previously been held. Certainly, if you look at the British West Indies, you did not see black uh, governors and office holders three years after the end of slavery. You might say in Haiti, well, yeah, Haiti they did, but of course there was basically a military dictatorship anyway. They didn't have a functioning democracy and they had thrown all the whites out anyway. But this effort, maybe Cuba, where um, uh, the end of slavery comes about through the wars of independence in the 1870s and 80s and there is a kind of integrated army uh, which then leads to a change in the society. But anyway, this moment of Reconstruction was quite unique. Um, but your larger point is absolutely correct. The whole trajectory of civil rights in America takes place on an international stage. And um, certainly the Cold War had a lot to do with the change in national policy and, um, you know, and, and things like that. And as to Woodrow Wilson... Well, you know, he was the first southern-born president since the Civil War, born in Virginia, although elected from New Jersey. And um, he certainly did not think when he talked about, well, Colonel House, his, you know, his sidekick said to him, you better watch out. You're talking about the right of self-determination of nations. People are going to take this seriously. You know, non-white people are going to take it seriously. He only meant it for Europe, but... The language has a life of its own, and he was kind of shocked when people in India said, well, wait a minute, what about our self-determination or Africa? Anyway, that's a whole other story. Sorry, sorry. sorry. You, um, were the suffragettes able to use the 14th Amendment? The suffragettes, the advocates of women's suffrage. Well, it, the, the, that is a very long story, which has a, sli a slight echo today in the little contretemps between Obama and Hillary Clinton. Um, Unfortunately, American politics or society has a way of sometimes degenerating into a question of comparative victimization. Who is the most oppressed group, you know, which is kind of a pointless way of thinking. But the 14th Amendment actually did not give anybody the right to vote. That comes with the 15th Amendment. Um, 
But it did introduce the word male into the Constitution for the first time in one of its clauses. It had a convoluted clause saying, if a state takes away the right to vote from any group of men, it loses some of its congressional representation. But if it doesn't let women vote, there's no penalty. So it made a distinction between, you know, in other words, the South could say, they don't want to give blacks the right to vote, that's okay, but you're going to lose a lot of congressmen. Many of the women's suffrage advocates were very annoyed, to say the least, about the 14th Amendment. And then later on about giving the right to vote to black men but no women because they felt the abolitionists had called for a kind of universal concept of equality. And now you're getting male equality, but women being left out in the cold. And it led to a pretty bitter split between the Elizabeth Cady Stantons and Anthony's and others and many of their former allies in the um, abolitionist movement. That's a whole other aspect of this, which is a very interesting story, but too complicated to go into in detail. Okay. I've, got, I've got three microphones out there. There's one gentleman first, then second, and gentleman third. Okay? So gentleman first here in green, yeah. Um, thank you very much. Um, I thought it was a fantastic talk. Thank and you. your talking about history reminded me, the history of history, reminded me very much of sitting in Chapel Hill talking to three impeccable liberal Democrats, all talking about how terrible Reconstruction could have been. And mm -hmm. I was trying to explain to them that Thadia Stevens would, thought, would have thought they were too radical. But, the, um, but just take one or two slides. You've got an uphill battle there, but anyway, good, good luck. <laughs> where, where I had a, um, some slight disagreements, what you're saying. Isn't the story on citizenship before the Civil War a bit more complicated, mm. given that, half in half, that the Constitution says a citizen of the state is a citizen of the United States, and given that half, about half of states even had voting rights for African Americans at the time the Constitution was ratified, that just because a massively southern court ruled that way doesn't necessarily mean, A, that they were correct, and B, that everyone agreed with them. Secondly, you were talking about Johnson being brought on for the South, but I thought it was more for Union opinion than North, and that's why Dickinson of New York is the alternative. And I was also wondering, I thought quite a lot of the Civil Rights Act actually gets reversed in the 1890s. It gets reversed by the court, but it's still on the books I, I and meant, then I meant, I meant resurrected. The amendments, the amendments during Cleveland's oh. presidency. Okay. All right. Now, let's, let's – all right. This is a gentleman who obviously knows the history very well. Uh, let me just comment. First of all, yes, the fact that the Supreme Court said that blacks are not to be citizens, they may have been wrong, and there were some scholars who think they are wrong. But, in fact, I think – the definition, of, the definition of citizenship came out of the states, as I think you suggested. There was no national definition of citizenship. In the, the Constitution, all it says is that each state has to recognize the citizens of other states. Um, the, but, you know, to go back to this notion of Americanism, way before the Dred Scott decision, a, a little-known but very important law, the Naturalization Act of 1790. 1790, this is right after the Constitution is ratified the first act to define who can become a citizen of the United States by emigrating from abroad. This is the, now, this is the time when Tom Paine is saying we are the asylum for mankind. Anybody who wants to come to the United States seeking liberties from fleeing the despotisms of Europe, etc., should come here. So that law says, you know, yeah, it says anybody can come here. After five years, they become a citizen of the United States. With one little exception, they have to be white. It puts the word white in. No non-white person can become a naturalized citizen of the United States. So that's right at the beginning of the republic. Clearly, this question of what is America had a white <laughs> boundary around it. 
even if it is certainly true that some states did seem to recognize blacks as citizens uh, at that time. But generally speaking, they didn't want a heck of a lot of them around. That's why, you know. Now, Johnson, I think, was put on the ticket to appeal to the post-war South. Johnson was a representative of... He was a man from Tennessee who was who had stayed with the Union, a senator who stayed in his seat when his state seceded from the Union. He was supposed to represent a legion of Southern loyalists who Northerners believed existed who would join the Republican Party after the Civil War. The Dickinson thing is too complicated for, the, for this audience, but I don't think that's the reason they talked about the Dickinson and Johnson. But... Johnson was there to appeal, yes, to Unionist Democrats in the North, but particularly after the war was over to Southern Unionists. Because remember, the Republican Party didn't exist in the South before the Civil War. And after the war is over, they're going to need votes in the South. Um, not quite sure I remember all your questions, but we'll go on to some other, and we can talk individually about one or two of the other points you raised. Okay? Uh, General uh, General here. Yeah, please, sir. Uh, good evening, sir. Thank you for your speech. Uh, my question is, you mentioned about the traditional and revisionist viewpoints of the um, reconstruction. Um, do you think the traditional viewpoint still holds um, in the popular public consciousness as opposed to a more academic consciousness? And if so, should there be, attempt, should there be an attempt to change it? Uh, that, well, this goes back to what the previous gentleman said. Yes. Uh, the, the in, I think among a certain generation of people who, uh, that, that it's, it has an amazing longevity. Uh, and hold. Uh, if you pick up your American history textbook today, you pick up school or college textbooks, you're going to find a much more up-to-date vision of Reconstruction. But in uh, popular consciousness, yes, uh, this is, you know, if I mention to somebody, I mean, you know, well, I write about Reconstruction. Oh, yeah, wasn't that period those carpetbaggers stole all this money and blacks were kind of running amok? Probably more people's vision of Reconstruction comes from Birth of a Nation or the little segment in Gone with the Wind about Reconstruction than from, uh, sad to say, scholarly works like my own and uh, others. Um, so, yeah, should we try to, this is a sobering lesson in the influence or lack thereof of professional historians on popular political consciousness. But it is changing little by little. Gone with the Wind has been consistently voted the most uh, famous, the popular yeah, it is. Film Definitely the most popular film ever made, yeah. Uh, there's a gentleman here, please, yeah. Um, in your lecture, which was very good, you mentioned that um, blacks got political rights, but they didn't get any economical rights. Um, but I remember reading in some of your literature that one of the reasons why the troops were withdrawn from the South was so that they could crush um, labor dissent in the North. Um, wasn't the huge increase in um, wage labor didn't mean that a lot of the people in the North and in, in the, all the United States suffered quite hardly. And the, the government always sided with big business. Didn't this have profound, uh, what profound implications did this have for the poverty of workers or wage laborers in the United States? And didn't it, in the, in, in the end, in the 30s, didn't it push it, them into the hands of people like the mob, the mob so they found a way of asserting their rights of, with big business? Well, I, I think the, the, the direction of your question is, is quite correct in the sense that um, the, Repu you know, the Republican Party of that era was a very odd conglomeration of the wealthiest and poorest people in the society. They represented the 
African Americans who were at the bottom of society, and they more and more represented business in the North, as well as many Northern middle class and other uh, others, even many laborers voted Republican. But yes, there is the, the war itself. This is the sort of irony of the Civil War. You know, the war itself launched to defend the idea of free labor, according to Lincoln. You know, Lincoln's special message to Congress in 1861 says, here's what we're fighting for, folks. We're fighting to maintain a society of free labor where every man, women didn't count at that time, where every man can own his own farm, his own shop, you know, not rely on someone else for wages, etc. But the very act of mobilizing for the war helped to undermine free labor. And by the 1870s, yes, factory production, wage labor is far more prominent. Labor strife is very uh, uh, dramatic in the North. After all, the depression that begins in 1873 leads to a lot of labor strife. And yes, some, the troops that are brought out of the South are sent in in 1877 to crush the National Railroad strike. So, you know, how that relates to the rise and fall of Reconstruction is something that a lot of historians have tried to figure out, and it's complicated, but there certainly uh, must be some connection there. That's, that's all I can say in a simple answer. Yeah. A gentleman here, please. Um, I think my question perhaps relates to the speaker before last, but it approaches it maybe from the, the other end, as it were. You mentioned at the beginning of your talk that you thought that the the whole southern approach to Reconstruction was race-driven. But um, yeah, I think probably until Appomattox that it was almost unthinkable for most people in the South that they were going to lose. Uh, and suddenly they were faced with having to come to terms with you know, an absolutely shattering defeat, which they weren't expected in a, in a war of their own making. And they had to rationalize this somehow. In fact, even James Mason, the southern commissioner in England, was still writing in 18... April 65, I still believe the war will come to a successful conclusion. Um, do you not think that, um, that, they, they, that their attempt to uh, address this was, to, was sociological as much as racial? They tried to do this by creating the myth of the Old South, which was certainly going very strongly by the time of Gone with the Wind, and I think it's still cherished in some yeah. parts of the South today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the myth of the Old South or the Lost Cause became very powerful, but I think there is actually a, a bit of a generation gap there. The, 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 the war was a devastating experience for the entire country, but particularly for the South. The death rate in the South is sort of like Russia in World War II. I mean, if you translate it out into that kind of population, it's, it's unbelievable what the death rate was in the, you know, population of military age, etc. And the destruction, not to mention the overthrow of their social system. Uh, there wasn't a heck of a lot of nostalgia in the South for the good old cause right after the Civil War. That comes a little bit later in the 1880s and the 1890s with a sort of, you know, flourishing of Confederate veteran societies and Confederate historical societies and the creation of military cemeteries in the South for the first time. And then you get that. By the turn of the century, it is very important. But I, and yes, these, how to deal with such a terrible, shocking defeat is, is, is always very difficult. But I think in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, that wasn't, it wasn't dealt with through nostalgia. People were pretty fed up with the leaders who had led them into this catastrophe. Um, but one other little point. You are absolutely right that even though we, looking back, say, oh, it was inevitable the North was going to win. Look, it's obvious. Um, People didn't necessarily think that at the time. Uh, a couple of economists uh, did this thing reported on in the Wall Street Journal uh, fairly recently where they tracked 
the price of Confederate bonds on the Amsterdam market <laughs> to see, who, you know, if you think the South's going to lose, there's going to be a discount on their bond. Well, Confederate bonds held up very well all the way into the early 1865. So there were some European capitalists who thought the South was going to win and it was a good investment. They lost every penny they invested in Confederate bonds because the 14th Amendment also has a clause saying none of that stuff can ever be repaid. But, uh, yeah, a lot of people thought the South was going to win until pretty close to the very end. One or two in this country, too. Absolutely. Um, I've got one final question from the gentleman in the back there, please. Yeah. Well, let me um, ask you to end by addressing the... If you could turn on the that, microphone, I, yeah, please. I think you can hear me anyway, but no, we I, can't, wonder, I wonder if you could end by addressing the point that you started with, which was how little known this period of Reconstruction is in American society today. And I wonder if you have a theory as to why such an important period is so little known. Is it because it was such a, well, a painful period that people have just collectively, American people have collectively decided to forget about <laughs> it? Or what's your theory as to why this period is so little known in American society today? I think, um, first of all, it, is, it does get overshadowed in the Civil War. The Civil War is the central event in American history in some ways, and um, somehow it, the, the Reconstruction just is cast into the shadow of the Civil War. But I think more uh, profoundly, perhaps, uh, it may be that it just raises really troubling questions about American history that we are not yet quite equipped to, uh, to confront about the legacy of slavery in this country, the possibilities of racial justice. I mean, to me, Reconstruction is actually very uplifting in a way. Mm. I don't see it as a period that's totally depressing, you know. It's true there was a terrible, uh, in the end, uh, outcome of defeat, but I'm inspired by the activity of ordinary people, former slaves, others, abolitionists, people trying to create a better society from the ashes of slavery. I think you can learn a lot from them. Um, but I think, uh, you know, as long as our country, maybe we are moving into a post-racial society, at least that's what the uh, commentators on Obama's campaign say. I'm not sure it's true or not. But, um, you know, as long as these questions are so fraught with controversy and, uh, and emotional resonance in America, I think people are going to find it hard to somehow come to grips with that, with that Reconstruction period. That may not be a very successful answer, but it's the best I can do, and I have thought about it a lot as someone who's written about it. So, therefore, everybody has to take as their responsibility to go out and try to promote popular understanding of Reconstruction. <laughs> anyway, thank you all very much. speaker as eminent as um, Eric to come and speak here uh, I always like to go to Wikipedia the, 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 the perfect antidote to a political scientist's lack of knowledge and uh, there's a number of quotations I have here that Eric has given, some of them may even be true Eric, but one I do think is serious and I think, I think sums up the, the wonderful lecture you've given this evening and you can see that also I think both from the reception and from, from the questions and if you don't mind me quoting you won't get too embarrassed it says, in a global age, the forever unfinished story 
uh, of American freedom must become a conversation with the entire world, not a complacent monologue with ourselves. And I think, I hope, this evening we've had that conversation and I hope you've enjoyed it. We certainly have. Thank you for coming here and thank you again to our speaker for a wonderful evening. Thank you very much.